Hi everyone, this is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of DC Power Hour. Very excited for today's episode. We've got the Battery Blarney Duo back together again. So that's that's been a few months. Been hard to track both of you guys down at the same time. So glad to have George and Alan here as their as their duo is is fully united here. And then we've got a very special guest today, Jeff Donato from H2 Scan. So I'll pass it over to you, Alan. And then when we when we pass it over to Jeff, we'll give him a chance to introduce himself as well. So welcome, Alan. Well, hello, everybody. Today's subject, I think, is, is a great one because it's a subject that's often overlooked, and that's ventilation in the battery room. And I've probably read a dozen documents, and probably each of them said something different. But anyway, it's a very topical one as well. So we, we'll also talk about some other things in the battery room besides ventilation. And that'll probably be spill containment and maybe battery reaction. The reason I say that is because our guest today, Jeff, who I've probably known for about 20 odd years, Jeff, I would say, at least that. And I do know that you've been involved in spill containment. You've been involved in with the battery rack vendor. And also now you're working with a hydrogen detector company, a product I seem to like pretty much. And we talked briefly about it at that time. However, we try to be non-commercial as well. So... Let me introduce De- Jeff here. Jeff, tell us a little bit about, about your background. I know you've hopped around a little bit, and that's probably great for your breadth and depth of knowledge. So let's have it, Jeff. Well, I've been in the in the battery industry for about 29 years, about half, half as much as you. And I started out in the, in the motive power area, selling forklift batteries and batteries for automatic guided vehicles. Then I moved on to to a, a couple of rep agencies and ended up with as the senior product manager for Emerson Network Power Liebert for about ten years. Now now it's Vertive, and and then moved on to Enviregard for selling safety products for probably another nine years or so. And then we then made the move to to H two Scan. So as the director of safety products, but. Throughout my tenure with with Enviregard and H2 Scan, I've also been a member of the IEEE ESSB. I, I chair the 1578 committee for spill containment, and also a member of of other working groups as well. So glad glad to be here today with y'all. Well, thanks, Jeff. We really appreciate it. And George, have you anything to add at this point? I know you'll certainly jump in during the conversations, but would you like to add anything? Nothing other than welcome, Jeff. It's the, the, the new product you're going to talk a little bit about is extremely interesting. So I look forward to discussing that part. Great. Okay, well, let, let, let's go back to the beginning. I know that uh, IEEE took an interest in it about 15 years ago, come up with the IEEE as a joint tree document, actually being the association of Something to do with air conditioning and ventilation. So anyway, <laughs> the, this document took a took a look at the battery room ventilation in a serious way. And the reason being is that 
previous codes and standards, mainly the NEC, the 70, and some other codes, besides standards guides, were a little bit wishy-washy about ventilation. I remember when I first got involved, one basic one code said basically the battery room shall be ventilated. Okay, so I truly got serious about it and come out with their own document. And I'm sure Jeff knows that document pretty well. I believe you were involved in that, Jeff, as well. So would you like to tell us what that document is all about? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a high, a high level view of it. Just if you read the document, it's, it's, it's full of formulas, but the basic principle is that according to the state code and a lot of local codes, when it comes to fire code is you, you have to have knowledge about your, what your battery can, can produce when it comes to hydrogen. And, and then you also have to have knowledge about the air exchange in your, in your room or building. And so you have to have those two pieces. So obviously ASHRAE covers the, the air exchange piece. And then, and then the IEEE 1635 gives a, a lot of input when it comes to what kind of hydrogen levels can a battery produce. And so using these, using these algorithms, you can, you can basically tell what your, based on your battery type, your room size, you can determine what your best and worst case scenarios would be. And of course, best case scenario being normal operation, worst case scenarios being um, thermal run runaway or charger runaway, um, those type of scenarios. And then how much ventilation are you going to need in those scenarios um, to be able to maintain safe levels? And of course, the safe level being 25% of the lower explosion limit. And, and so what that equates to is 1% of room volume. So being how hydrogen is 4% is explosive at 4% to maintain 25% of that, you have to keep your room at 1% or less. And so that's the whole goal with, with ventilation. And that document gives you some pretty good insight on how to create your calculations to meet your hazardous mitigation analysis that you'll need to show how you deal with hydrogen based on your current your current setup of your batteries as well as your room and the available space in the room and the and the and the current air exchange and if you need to increase your air exchange or if you're okay those types of things so that's really what that document covers of course i agree with you jeff the one problem i have with that document and i was involved in writing it as well i believe george was as well but is that it had a lot of calculations a lot of formula and i must admit my brain hurt <laughs> but I was, uh, but what's left of my brain? But anyway, so what I did, I, I sat down and came up with a calculator, incorporating those formulas for both float charge, equalized boost, worst case scenario, and actually Eagle Eye has that calculator at the moment, and we we do use it. I also come up with a technical paper, which is probably in the archive archive somewhere. And I know uh, Dave will probably dig that up sometime. They also, with that document, uh, it tied it to 1%, if I'm right, where some other documents, you're writing about the lowered explosive limit being 4%. Uh, some, some other documents said 2%. And I think we tied it to 1%, which was a good move because if you, if you do a typical calculation on a typical battery, say a thousand ampere hour flooded battery, but it led us a battery. 
and you calculate for, say, equalized charge or boost charge conditions. You, you come up with, if you had a typical room of 20 by 20 by, by 10, you come up with that, something like you would probably need something like one complete air exchange per week or per day. So a lot of it was, you know, we used to say, what ventilation do you need? And the response was, well, if, if you walk into the room once a week and wave your arms around, that should be enough air movement to satisfy your needs. But it is very stringent, and I, th I appreciate that. But the other problem I have, Jeff, and this is kind of rhetorical, but hydrogen, as we all know, is the lightest element. Yes. And consequently, if there is any gassing from a battery, and the gas is gas both hydrogen and oxygen, but if there is any gassing, those hydrogen atoms will make their way as fast as they can up to the highest point in the room. Some even claim that depending on the composition of concrete, that it could actually mitigate through the concrete. So here we are trying to put in a hydrogen detector. Where do we put it in? You know, are we fooling ourselves if we put it in the wall somewhere? You know, shouldn't it be at the highest point of the, of the room? Yeah, and I know, you have I know you have thoughts about that. Yeah, we, we always recommend the highest point in the room. Um, again, it's it's really just to to catch accumulation. Of, of course, I I always look at hydrogen detection as as almost like a smoke alarm. It's it's you hope to never use it. You probably will never use it, but in case something goes the way you don't expect it to go, it's there. But as far as as far as its placement, obviously we've seen different applications. We've seen those that we you know, we need to, you know. Of course, the code says you need to to, to it's it's about. Uh, volume of airspace in a room. So placing it at the top of the room makes best sense based on the fact that hydrogen is lighter than air and it's going to go to the go to the top in an extreme overcharge condition. Obviously you'll you'll produce hydrogen sulfite, which will be heavier than air and be towards the floor, just like yeah. propane. But but of course we, we're trying to catch things before it gets to that gets to that level. And then of course you have your cabinet installations and I won't name names, but, but we all know the, of one cabinet manufacturer that kept blowing the doors off their cabinets back in the day and, and tried to connect, you know, evacuation tubing and such that they, they learned that the hydrogen will, will go through evacuation tubing, depending on the, on the composition of the tubing, similar to what you said about concrete, that it'll actually escape through that. So you're right. It, it, it hydrogen will find any way out. Uh, that that it can. So ha have there been incidents? Yes, of course. And and of course, those have been in in uh, very abnormal conditions most of the time. So, but to your point uh, to the document, you know, it, it it doesn't take into consider every possible scenario. You know, obviously your your, your the, the composition of the of 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 the ceiling of the walls, what how porous they are. You know, it's making some assumptions, but obviously. There are more assumptions to be to be made, and this is just basically keeping you in the in in you know to give you some sort of standard to keep you in the safe zone. I I, I remember I did a, a size using your calculator, I believe. It certainly certainly matched the description of what you said, and I had two parallel strings of vented lead acid cells, twenty three plate, in a fairly small room, fifty by forty by thirteen, and I was calculating I needed three point one eight cfm. To maintain one percent, so obviously it's a it's a guideline. 
If the question, I've got, I've got, I was just to say, and I want to step in here because we've just, uh, I just had one given to me a couple of months back. We we were doing a, a battery installation at a, a site. It was a brand new battery room and the architects had gone a little bit crazy and it had vaulted ceilings in it. And the, the way they were made, it was almost divided up into little containers the way they designed it. So my question was, and they had stuck the hydrogen detector beside the battery. <clears throat> so we said, no, you've got to move it. But the question became, how many do we actually need? Do we need to have one in every one of these little vaults? You know? And it was, well, that's not practical. <laughs> as simple as that. But it just, it, it it's interesting when you, you talk about if you're not generating that much gas, you know, where is the best place to put it at that point? And does it need to does it need to accumulate to that concentration in order to detect it? So we haven't got a way of detecting it as it passes through it, for instance. No. That that's a good point. In fact, it depends. Uh, like our normal, like our normal answer we like to give in the battery industry. But the you know the answer is it really depends on the sensor itself or the or the analyzer. There are sent there are sensors analyzers that will only give you that one and two percent just because that's the way they're designed. Uh, when you talk about UL, I think it's twenty seventy five. When you read that document for for hydrogen sensing, it's very specific in the use of dry contacts. And so when when you provide a one and two percent, then that's uh, dry contact based on based on that condition. That's what it's going to output. Or there are other analyzers, in, you know, which you have one in your possession that actually does a full range of very small trace amounts of hydrogen all the way up to 100%. So, so I guess it depends on the instrument you're using. Is is you know can it can it sense that? And and then I would think also is you know based on the risks of 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 ignition as well. How high are those vaults? Is there some common space that you could put it below there? So if it accumulates, it'll detect it going up to those vaults. And maybe even if it if it starts accumulating more than what you would think, and you can lower the threshold to basically measure maybe a half a percent or a quarter percent or something much smaller than than the 1%. So you can kind of get an early detection. So you know, you'll just have to think through it and, and figure out where the best place to where the best place to actually put it. And if there's anything up in those vaults, anything electrical. That mm -hmm. could possibly set that off, lights or or any kind of any kind of electrical design up there that you might have to be concerned about. Yeah, I, I've got you. You made me think about it. You're right. We, what we could probably do is put it to the highest point of all these little vaults, and then just work out how many there are, and work out what what percentage we need to detect up in one of them, to at least give us some indication of. The potential volume that might be up there, right? I, I get the question a lot. You know, we, we talk about lead acid batteries and also, you know, nickel cadmium batteries and such. I also get the question about lithium batteries and what it'll produce before deflagration. And when when we look at the ninety five forty A, you can see that, that it'll produce hydrogen, but very very small amounts. And so, being able to detect that with a lot of the, today's sensors is very tough. Uh, and, 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 and a lot of times we're, we're, you, know, you think, how many sensors do I really need to be able to detect a trace amount of hydrogen coming out of a module that only lasts 
400, 500 seconds, you know? So, and, and in those batteries, it would definitely be tough to do in lead acid batteries, obviously a lot easier because you're going to, you're going to have a lot more constant, a lot more volume of, of hydrogen coming out of, of that, of that type of battery. But yeah, a lot of it has to do with, with you're right, the setup, this, the type of sensor you're using, is it, is it made to measure something that, that small and the response time of the sensor. So say for instance, you know, not, not on the edge of commercialism here, but I'm just going to talk about, there's two models of sensors that we have. One is rated for 30 seconds or less for, to, to measure hydrogen in the air. And another one is rated at five minutes or less. Well, well, the difference obviously being is that one has a much higher response time. One you would use to detect leaks, almost like you would in a lithium battery system. And, you know, you're trying to detect small amounts very quickly. Lead acid batteries, obviously nothing happens in, in seconds. <laughs> in fact, in, in the, in the IEEE, we're talking about another term called thermal walk away just to, just to address the slow, slow evolution of, of hydrogen. It's almost like watching grass grow coming out of the battery system. And, and of course, with, you know, with, with that kind of scenario, you need much less response time. So you could do, you know, you could do, you know, a, a, uh, you know, up to five minutes and you'd be perfectly within your range. But if I'm in that vaulted ceiling area and I'm trying to detect a whiff of something going by, I'm going to want a faster response time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of it would have to do with the sensor. A lot of people forget, Jeff, that the NICATs evolve hydrogen as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've had people ask, I've got a NICAT battery. I don't need hydrogen detection. I said, you do, you do. But another thing is that I always had a problem with hydrogen detectors in that most of the ones on the market or have been on the market require calibration, regular calibration, sometimes six monthly. Now, with this hydrogen detector, it's way up in the ceiling, and I need a big stepladder or something like that to get up there and calibrate it. Hey, I'm not going to do that. Or I'm just going to take the, reg- the right box in the in the checkoff sheet. So what's your thoughts on that? So my, my thoughts are that you're, you're absolutely right. The, what we call TCDs or cal- catalytic bead sensors, they do require that calibration. They also have potential for dry out, you know, and I'm not, not, you know, I'm not talking about brands because we have TCDs as well. So it, it just has to do with the style of sensor and, and that's been the traditional style sensor. So if, if you, if you have a, a catalytic bead sensor, it will drift and you have to bring it back into calibration every six months or so to sometimes, uh, depending on the manufacturer, it could be three months, depending on your depending on your, on, on the IO manual that of, of the, of the system. And then of course you have the, the MEM sensors, which are solid state. They, they, they don't last as long, but they're, you know, but they, they're, they're also not having to be calibrated and the failure modes are different on each one. So, so that, that's been, when we talk about the IEEE document in the 1635, I, I actually interviewed the uh, couple of people who were on that on those committees, and and one of the common themes were that that I asked, well, why why don't you really de- de- address detection? And they said, well, nobody maintains their their sensors, so therefore we feel it's a risk to the site. So if nobody maintains them, then you have a false sense of security, and therefore, or if you don't replace them during and it's a replacement cycle or or it's life, then expected life, then you're going to have a false sense of security as well. 
And so finding a, you know, finding a, a sensor that actually matches the life of the, of the battery system, I find is a little bit, a little bit better. Sometimes that would be a MEMS sensor. Sometimes it might be something a little bit, a little bit more than a MEMS might be a TCD, but again, like you said, could, could require maintenance. Then there's a new, there's a new technology out there. That's more of a precious metal sensor has auto calibration. It doesn't require any kind of maintenance as well. So that's, that's the newer style. And uh, in that case, you could put those up in the ceiling and not have to worry about going up to the ceiling and, and do the calibrations. So there, there are many styles out there available for different scenarios and uh, calibration is a concern based on, based on the, the maintenance aspect and, you know, and, and actually producing a working sensor. If, if you, if you're calibrating, then you have a working sensor. If you're not calibrating, it's going to, it's going to drift off at some point. Some of the newer technologies solve, solve those issues and, and, and allow you to keep them up in the ceiling. The other, the other issue is, of course, like you said, they put them up in the ceiling. You can't get to it except for a ladder, but we also see equipment being built around the sensors as well. That causes an issue, you know, whether they're putting more cable or more or other, other things up on the ceiling that might cause obstruction. They put it directly above the battery. So you have to get up there with not only a ladder, but you have to get a boom to get to it. There's a lot of different, a lot of different placement issues that we see with these sensors. Now, that's why you know, it became part of the, what I call the drive-by maintenance program. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, not, not, not only the sensor, but several other things in the battery. Well, part of the whole scenario is not just the sensing the hydrogen, it's getting rid of it. So can we move on to battery room ventilation for a while? Sure. Now, I guess a, a good hydrogen sensor has the capable capabilities of somehow or other actuating a fan, either through a dry contact or a form C contact. Uh, I did hear way back of an instance where the hydrogen detector had a form C relay in it and the actual spark from the relay set off the explosion. Sure, you're familiar with that one as mm -hmm. well. Yes. <laughs> so, so anyway, so what's your your thought or your angle? And George, you can jump in here as well, because you have some experience of this, of the actual ventilation fan itself. Well, I, I found that that companies are looking for ways to reduce the amount of energy consumed and also and increase their efficiencies, and so constantly running a fan anymore is kind of frowned upon. So those who have detection, but no way of tying it into a fan, I haven't seen, I, I see people trying to use timers. I see, you know, to using different methods to try to save energy. However, the, the sensor, like you said, typically will have different communication outputs. And, and we, we know that in the telecommunications area per, per NFPA 76, there's always been this, this enunciation requirement in telecom and the enunciation requirement is kind of carried through a lot of the fire code for for most commercial buildings. So if you have a sensor, you have something that's that's part of your HMA or your or your hazardous mitigation analysis and that led to your hazardous mitigation plan, then you should have an enunciation for a call to action or something that triggers the in this case the evacuation of hydrogen. So if if you have a a dry contact, whether it be in the in the, in a controller of a of, of a hydrogen detection system or whether it's in the sensor itself, 
typically you're right. It could have some sort of a digital relay or, or a dry relay. And in that case, that could trigger another high voltage relay to act, to act, activate the fan and also alarm the, the operation center or the building management system or whatever they need to, to enunciate to. In the case, if your sensor speaks Modbus, then that could go to a Modbus high voltage relay and also activate that relay, which would also activate the fan. And of course, we want to activate at 1%. And then of course, 2% is more of your critical alarm that basically says that obviously it's you've reached that 2% level, even though you've passed the 1% and your ventilation system is on. So then you'd have to take other steps to clear out the hydrogen. But obviously those are very, very rare. But, but that's how we would recommend it, of course, you know, for, to, to make sure that that you're operating at efficiency, you're not exchanging air when uh, mass amounts of air when you don't need to, especially you know when you get into hot and cold environments, uh, parts of the country. Uh, if you can imagine uh, moving air in Arizona, where you know during the summertime it's probably not all that popular, and and also up north in the wintertime, it's it's going to lose a lot of efficiency in the site to be able to turn air. So so connecting those to the sensors is is recommended when you look at uh, IFC and NFPA the IFC chapter 12 and FPA 855, they, they say that if you use a hydrogen detector as part of, part of your, your, your hazardous mitigation plan, then you have to follow certain steps. And there, some, of the, what, some of those steps have to do with backup power. They, it has to be on some two hours of backup power. It should be connected to ventilation fans. You know, there's, there's, certain, there's certain criteria that they, that they give as guideline about how it should be connected. Before we move Rich, on to George, I was uh, going to say very, very briefly, what Jeff, what's your thoughts on ventilation fans where they actuate it by the fan itself switching on? Is that a cheap way of doing it or is it practical or is it, is it kosher? I have to be honest with you. I, I mean, I know it's done both ways. I don't have an opinion either way. You know, if you have an opinion, we'd love to hear it. No, not really. George, okay. what? Well, my, my, my question was, is that I think we've got to remember is that when we talk about ventilation of the battery room, it has to go to outside air. Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen battery rooms in buildings where it was vented out into the corridor of the offices. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. he changed that after a lot of complaints, but that's the way it was originally installed. But the point is that if you have a battery room, then Theoretically, if you're going to try and avoid any fumes at all from the battery room getting into the operational areas, that room is going to be have to be pretty airtight, except for the ventilation fan and some form of input to it. Doesn't that then open up the point is that if somebody's working in there, then we have to obey the ASHRAE rules about air changes per hour? Good point, George. And I think those are actually fair changes per hour, something like four changes per hour. I'm, I'm not sure, but you're absolutely right. But it's very, very hard to have an airtight room. Uh, yeah, but I'm just saying is that, you know, <clears throat> we, we, it's just, it was, a, it was a thought process was how do we, how do we meet that requirement if somebody questions it, you know? Well, here's a big question. I have a vented lead acid, sorry, a valve regulated lead acid battery. Okay. Do mm -hmm. I need hydrogen detection? Do I need ventilation? 
It depends. I mean, great honestly, answer. great answer, Jeff. Great answer. That's the answer. Um, he's a battery guy, can't you? Yeah, exactly. I I think it depends on 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 your on your on on the size of the space around it, and also the the air exchange within it. So, I mean, if you, if you're in a enclosed cabinet, it's NEMA four X rated, then I would say you probably need to have some provision. But if it's you know, I, I was just in a battery room on the second third floor in New York City that had plenty of normal air exchange based on just to support human life. They actually did the IEEE 1635 ASHRAE 21 study, found out they were perfectly fine, you know, in any, any scenario. So it's, you know, we talk about fire code uh, or any, any code, of course, that has anything to do with any kind of hazardous analysis. They, they just want you to do the, the, the diligence to make sure that you can meet those, those worst case scenarios. Well, you know, I agree with Jeff, obviously, but I have another version of, it depends when it comes to that. Uh, it depends on the authority having jurisdiction. Right. They have they have a last word where it's a fire inspector, fire marshal, building inspector, whatever. If they say you need it, you better install it. Yes, that's they, part of say, Yeah. We say yes, sir. So that's but we're probably about a third of the way, two thirds of the way through this. Let, let's move on to a different subject that mm -hmm. I know you're well versed in, Jeff is that uh, I think you were involved in the early days of spilled container. Mm -hmm. okay. This is another subject that's not fully understood. You know, do I need spilled containment for VROA, say? But what's your thoughts on spilled containment? And I know it's covered in the IEEE as well. Right. So IEEE, of course, covers method methods of spill containment and some of the and some of the concerns and, and different in different ways to, to handle it. Um, that, uh, you know, when you look at old ver older versions of the fire code, it, it just had to do with volume of electrolyte. And of course the volume of electrolyte has been replaced in newer versions of the code by, by how many kilowatt hours of batteries you have. So if you have 70 kilowatt hours, then you have to comply with fire code. And then within that, they say that if you, they exclude the valve regulated batteries from the spill containment. It also used to be that you could you, you needed three percent neutralization on valve regulated batteries, and of course the the, the reason for that was that I'm going to date myself a little bit. Just like in the uh, early days of the valve regulated technology and the way it was the way it was constructed, you know they they experienced several manufacturers experienced dry out issues, and so they started to, to fill these a little bit more with electrolytes, so they didn't so they didn't have dry out issues throughout the expected life of the battery. And then, of course, if you broke a, a brand new battery open, you're going to get what a pint of fluid or so. It's not going to be a lot, but there's a little bit. So they they put it into the fire code that you had to have three percent neutralization on your largest jar in the room. Later in the in in the latest versions of IFC and an NFP A55 that was removed. But but again, to your point, a lot of local jurisdictions, depending on where that battery system is placed, may still require something. We found that in, in certain cities, if you have, if that battery is at, in the basement, ground level, and there's nothing underneath it, a lot of times they'll forgive it and they'll just let make you put in a small spill kit. But if you are above ground and you are in, and there are people below that system, then some of them may want to see some sort of absorption. Doesn't necessarily mean they need full spill containment, four inch barrier, but they want to see something under the battery. And we've come across that as well. But that's a local authority's opinion. And of course, local authorities, based on home rule, all they have to do 
is follow the state code. And as long as they have the state code minimally met, they can add to it. And that's based on, 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 on home rule, either written into the, into the government's constitution, uh, the state constitution, or it's, it's legislation. And so uh, it gives the, the local governments a little bit more flexibility to be able to say, we want more in this area. Uh, New York City is a great example with the, you know, they have uh, the B-28 code, the FDNY B-28. That is actually a mix of IFC based on New York's adoption of IFC and also the NFPA 855 kind of baked into one document. And so, so now they have to go through the training, have a certificate of fitness and those types of things. So that's a, that's a good example of the local government exercising home rule authority. We had a great example years ago, George remembers this. I won't mention the name of the company, but we installed a battery in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, it was a so-called 20-year life VRLA battery. And it was a big battery, probably five strings. And we had to go in because the local law authority had the jurisdiction says you will have to fill containment. Now we had checked previously, but with the wrong the wrong source. We checked with the state of Arizona. We didn't check with the city of Phoenix. So that's just, that was just an example. So question this bill this bill containment pillows. I know you know it's supposed to change color when contact with acid. What about flammability of those pillows? Well, the the, the flammable definitely should be non-flammable per the UL listing or per UL requirements. Mm -hmm. FM Global also has a requirement forty nine fifty five that that also requires to you know to have their flammability standards met. So if you're an FM approved facility, if if there's a FM approved pillow for, for that application, they like have that. But in, in either case, they, they, they're, they're, you know, the pillow cannot sustain flame, so they, they definitely need to be non-flammable. However, there's, there's, I, I've been in sites, and you probably have too, where, where you see a lot of different products that are not rated for batteries make it into a facility. And you know, whether it be in the form of a pillow or a spill kit, picking on my New York, my New York customers, but in the past, but I, I actually remember I walked into one place, I recommended they, they get a small spill kit for their batteries based on the local authorities recommendations. And they went out and bought a floor dry kit. <laughs> so, so, and you could do the same thing with the pillows and pigs, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the long pillows that uh, they make for, for absorbing oil and other substances. Yeah. Also, another thing we see too, is that uh, mixing mixing technologies. So in other words, mixing chemistries, uh, putting a pillow that's rated for lead acid batteries under an ICAD battery, making sure that that pillow is rated for, for KOH, because obviously, you know, lead acid battery is sulfuric acid and water electrolyte versus an ICAD battery, potassium hydroxide. So, you know, alkaline versus base. So in that case, making sure you have the right absorbance and neutralizer. This is just a hint for everybody. If you're Expecting a battery room, and you notice there's something wrong with the pillows. Some look a little bit cleaner than others, and turn those pillows over, because what I've seen in the past is you get a little bit of electrolyte spilled on them, mainly probably because of just checking specific gravity or something like that, or there's been a little drip or something like that. So anyway, 
check underneath them because you may find that the pillows have just been turned over and uh, there may be another problem. So, George, what's your experience on that? Uh, on spill containment here. Well, that, you, you, you've hit on something, and that's one of the things that when I'm talking about spill containment in the in the training classes, I actually tell them that if they see something like that on a visual inspection or, or see a, a mark on a pillow, but there doesn't appear to be any leaks or anything, you could reasonably assume that somebody, you know, especially if the batteries haven't been cleaned on the top very often, it could simply be some top up water that spilled down on it. And my, my normal comment is if you can't see any visible leaks, turn the pillow over, but make sure that you note where it is and make it you know in, in your, your service record. And then the next time you come in, check. If there is a mark on that pillow again, then you've got to go a lot do a lot more investigation because there's there's something happening that's causing basically acid to appear at that point. If it's perfectly clear when they go back in again, then no, it was it was somebody spilled water. But I've got a question for, for Jeff that we, we're finding interesting now is when you change out the pillows because they've been totally neglected and are in a terrible state, uh, how do you how are you supposed to dispose of them? So the the first recommendation I always have to everybody is. First of all, don't just pick up everything and throw it in a big Gaylord container and set it in the corner and then call somebody. That's that's kind of the wrong approach. You, you want to make sure, number one, that the pillows are are non-contaminated and that they're noted as that. And sometimes you might have to test them if you, if, to your point, if you have stains or abnormal, abnormalities on the pillow, you might need to make sure that those are free of lead particulates and things of that nature if you had some sort of incident. And then, of course, you know, with, with flooded batteries, we always you know, recommend just replace them with the battery because the resorbents inside of pillows typically have a lifespan too. So if you're, you know, they, they become rigid over time. They, the fabrics may, may, may become, it may be deteriorate based off of, you know, depending on the, on the brand of pillow, some, some are tougher than others, you know, and some of them may actually have sensitivities to UV. Some of them may have just just break down over time just naturally. So if you keep them around too long, then obviously you're going to have more of a mess to clean up. And then you don't want to have dust in your, if it's a data center application or electronics environment, you don't have dust flying around. So, so making sure that you include pillows in on inspection is kind of important. Make sure that they're in good condition, make sure they don't have leaks and they don't have color changes, as you mentioned with pH reactive kind of components inside of the pillow. But but again, like if you replace the pillow, if if the pillow has contamination or has signs of contamination, then that has to be treated as hazardous material. So you have to assume that, you know, whatever is in the electrolyte is also in the pillow. And at that point, if if, if you have, uh, say, for instance, if you have a, a, a jar to cover seal issue and you have electrolyte flowing out, which I've seen before in, in, in some utility applications, and they won't change them until the maintenance window. Of course, because it's nuclear or whatever the case. But um, if you have that kind of a that kind of a situation where where your pillars are definitely exposed, then you want to make sure that those go to a, a hazmat facility and they're not just being thrown thrown away. What do uh, you think about cleaning the pillows as part of the maintenance? Because some of the sites, the the dust and that that gathers on top of them, it effectively makes it difficult to even see a color change on them. 
you know, it, anything that spills on it is absorbed by the dust and dirt before it ever gets to the pillow. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever cleaned a pillow, but we have we have suggested that they, to your point, they turn them over throughout the second half of their life so that you have, you know, you have a, a clean side, if you will, moving forward. So, you know, if it's a flooded battery, maybe you, you, you turn them over year seven or year six or so, and then, and then you, you, you know, try to go on that way. But you're right. Some of the facilities are, can produce some dust and grime. Before we move on to another topic, I'd like to bring up is I just wish for the, the old days where you can calculate the spill containment based on the volume of electrolyte and not some yeah, kilowatts calculation. And the other thing I would just put in here to conclude that's this sector is that obey the four-inch rule, spill containment, but don't exceed it because then it becomes a trip hazard. Mm -hmm. So people, I've seen spill containment that stretches retrofit probably that stretches about 12 inches away from the battery and you can't even get the get to work on the battery terminals or so that, that's another stuff but since we got you on here jeff another area that you might have, you have some experience in if i recollect is that that's battery racking and it's also another really misunderstood subject i've been in it long enough to go back to the uniform building codes and some other codes and they all had seismic zones associated mm -hmm. with them and things like that. And as you know, that's all, that's all changed now. And I don't know how much it's changed, but I do know that I've seen things where you don't refer to seismic zones zero through, through four, but have some other descriptions. So would you like to enlighten our listeners about some of that, Jeff? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, there's all seismic studies, all kind of kind of evolved over the years. I mean, you know, after a lot of the major earthquakes in the West, including San Fernando and, and such, but, and as, as the USGS kept collecting data, you know, they, the more data you collect, obviously the more precise you can be. And, and, and it used to be they'd carve off zones on a map and you just put your finger on the zone, just like what you, what you were describing. It's zone one, two, a two B zone three and zone four. And that's how you would calculate your seismic requirement for your rack. So since the since we have more data at our disposal, they they went ahead and and changed it to SDS level. And so SDS level is 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 a is a calculation based off the coordinates of of the site. And your SDS level can change as you move around a little bit. It's more precise than zones. So in other words, you can have like say for instance in in California it was all a UBC zone four, but you can have different SDS levels as you move around California based on the faults and based on seismic activity. And so, really, what they've done is they said, based on USGS data and how it's plugged into some of these graphical interfaces under these or user interfaces, I should say, for for engineers, they could they could plug in a calculation based on an address or coordinate and they, it will give them all of the seismic data that you will need for that address or coordinate. And an SDS is one of those. Okay. So we have that as a battery manufacturer, then you have to decide how does your design meet that SDS requirement? Very similar to how does my rack meet 
an old UBC zone two or two A or a zone three or a zone four. But now you're having to be a little bit more specific on on range of SDS range levels. So what we're seeing mostly is that is that for um, for most rack manufacturers, they will meet 80 plus percent with a single design. So it's almost like you're selling a zone three or a zone four rack into every application. And and then and then when you when you have to meet higher level applications, it really means that you're probably not on the ground anymore. You're probably top, what we they call top of building or on different stories of different floors of a building. And so in that point, what you're doing is you're really going from, say, for instance, a rack that is rated for seismic, but is probably out of formed steel. And the rack that's going up on in, in multiple stories on a building is probably made out of tube because it needs to be much stronger. So having said that, these two designs that you have will, will accommodate everything. But one, you're, you're trying to get one design to meet you about 80, 85% or more of the, of, the, of the applications based on that range. Could you break it up more? Absolutely. You could go make a ultra light, a light, a moderate, and a heavy. If you wanted to make all those designs, you can certainly do that. And, and you would have to just say which SDS levels ranges are you meeting? But so instead of zones, we went to SDS levels, but it basically means the same thing, except for you're, you're having to, you have to provide this FEA data based on whatever, either like a virtual shake test would be, or if it's for essential facilities, like it's going into a hospital or a, a government facility or someplace that's deemed essential by the building code, then it has to have experience data when it comes to that test. So that that's a different certificate. So it's broken up a little bit. I know it's a little complicated, but there are sizers out there that like say oshpod.org will give you your site, your SDS level for that site. And then all you have to do is when, you, when you're putting a battery system in that site, you give that to whoever is going to provide your racks and you say your rack has to meet that seismic zone. And great. so that, that SDS level. That's, that's great, that's great, great information. Yeah, it is great. Go ahead. Uh, is there any uh, comparison chart, for instance, that would tie SDS levels to the old uh, zone ratings? Because one of the problems that we have today is that uh, we might have introduced SDS and all of us understand it because we listen to it at committee meetings. Uh, the average customer has no idea. They still want to buy a zone three or a zone four rack. Yeah. And, and so... Here's my answer on that. I tried to make that chart, and I found that there's not a correlate correlation. I could be in Los Angeles and have one SDS level, and I can be in San Francisco and have a completely different SDS level. So, however, like I said, most manufacturers try to meet everything with or most everything with one model, like say eighty percent, eighty percent, eighty twenty rule. Basically, you're taking eighty percent of your SDS levels and you're meeting it with one design. So really all, all, all we do is we try to say, okay, well, you, you want a zone four. All we're going to do is we're going to take your address that you're going to install. We're going to give that to the rack, you know, rack manufacturer, whether it be a separate rack manufacturer or the battery manufacturer doing it or whoever's doing that. And we're going to say, confirm it meets this. Now, most of the battery rack manufacturers out there have at least done an FEA analysis a finite element analysis on their on their system so they know what the SDS level is. What 
what, what, what they haven't done all the way is, is if it's in a central facility and they need experience data. And a lot of them are, there are some manufacturers who have done that and there are others who do it upon request. And so, but it's the SDS certificate that's required by the building code. And so that, whether it be for non-essential facilities and it be a FEA certificate or it be an experience data certificate for essential facilities, but that certificate will be required by code. So even though they may ask for that, definitely do the due diligence and grab the SDS level, submit it to the to the supplier and make sure it meets it. Okay. <clears throat> Thanks, Jeff. That was really good. Um, okay. we, we've covered a lot of information in this hour. Have you any other questions for uh, Jeff George or any comments? No, I, I just think this is this has been one of the most technical podcasts we've done. It, it in the length in the amount of detail we've been talking about and the depth of the detail. It's been been very interesting indeed. Well, we, we could have gone through another hour at least, I guess. But uh, what what would I, I would like? If, if David, are you listening? Yep, I'm here. What I'd like you to do is get some of the information that Jeff talked about. You know the STS information, code, certain code numbers, and maybe we can we can credit Jeff with it, but maybe we can put it up on up on the website. I would love to see that because, yeah, uh, you know, I understood what he was talking about, but you know some of the numbers thrown around and things like that, I, I don't think some of our listeners will, and they'd be very grateful to have some of these spelled, things spelled out for them. And also nice to know about some of the uh, uh, newer technologies when it comes to hydrogen detection. And this whole thing's a lesson in, don't go to a battery vendor. There are some great battery vendors, distributors and reps, and then go somewhere else for a rack and go somewhere else for hydrogen detection. I mean, to me, to me it's a something that should be one package. So everything's coordinated together. And that way you don't get yourself in trouble. So what do you say about that, George? Oh, I, I totally agree with you. But you're, you're coming back to the idea that we engineer things again. This is this is contrary to what a lot of people believe in or think about It's It's more you buy this, you buy that, that's the cheapest vendor. And you put it together. You know, you and I and Jeff, I believe, well, we came out of the era when engineers designed everything. And you know, the salesman, the salesman brought the idea in, and we were the ones that converted it to fact, and what, what was eventually sold. That's no longer the case. It's, it's a totally different world we're living in. And we can see it by some of the problems that occur. So you're talking about some of those financial engineers out there, <clears throat> opportunistic salespeople? Would I say that? Yes. Uh, so any, probably David, probably should be winding up here. So anything you'd like to say in conclusion, Jeff, besides you had a wonderful day, time well spent and everything else. So anything else you'd like to tell our listeners? Yeah, actually, actually there's a, I wrote a seismic paper for BATCON, not this, this year, but the year before the, the BATCON before that. And it's goes, goes through the entire story about, you know, how we got here on the on this on this journey and in 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 calculating sds levels and so if you're interested in that grab that paper and then i i did a summary on the on this last year's batcon paper so 
that's that's also out there as well. Yeah, I, I do remember that. Uh, the, the year you gave that, I believe, it was the one at the Hard Rock Casino, mm -hmm. Jeff. Right. Uh, that was the only BatCon I have ever missed. Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, nothing, nothing personal, Jeff. But I was uh, through various health reasons, but I do remember it. But what I'd like to, to say as well is that BatCon is under transition at the moment. A lot of people know. We'll be coming out with an announcement very, very shortly. It is now under the wings of a very capable organization called CBI, Consortium for Battery Innovation. And one of the, one of the things about BatCon is that we have, both with Albert and with Berdeth, uh, we have published every paper, archived every paper that was ever presented. So if you go on the site at the moment, you're not going to be able to do that because it's under transition, under some legal things, but it will be transferred over. And anybody that's got a computer can go onto the BATCOM website and look up for, all you have to do is type in uh, your, anybody's name, type in your name, Jeff, and that come up with a list of papers you've presented there. A lot of great information, a lot of great information. And uh, type in George's name, type in mine, you, you get the same thing, every every paper. So, you know, that's always a great resource. And I'm glad you mentioned the fact that I remembered reading the paper, Jeff, but I wasn't there when you presented it. So, George, anything you'd like to say and wrap up? No, I'm going to be quiet just for once. It's uh, As I said, I, I feel it was a very, very good podcast. You do. Thanks. Uh, I, I felt... I thought we shouldn't involve you more there, but I, I know you need a little bit of respite, George, from some of these podcasts. And I believe we're up to about number, what, what's the number, David? I think we're close to 40. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's 40 hours of me talking. Oh, that's, that's a working week. So anyway, once again, thanks, Jeff. You've been Welcome. a breath of fresh air. And we look forward to having you back again. One of these days, Love to. maybe maybe we can talk about talk about something else. But it depends, right? It depends. <laughs> okay. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, thank guys. You. And and again, we'll have all those resources available on our on our website and link them to the the episode page that will launch when this podcast airs. So, thanks again, Jeff, Alan, and George, and we'll see you next time. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.